Amen. Well, today we're looking once again at the Apostle John's second letter, Second John. So I'd like to invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Second John. Today we're looking at verses 4 through 6. 4 through 6. John says, I was very glad to find some of your children walking in truth, just as we have received commandment to do from the Father. Now I ask you, lady, not as though I were writing to you a new commandment, but the one which we've had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to His commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, that you should walk in it. Last week we looked at the first three verses, and as we were looking at them, we were introduced to the subject of truth. John uses that word five times in the first four verses. But as I got thinking about that this week... I wanted to make a few more statements about truth. I titled today, What is Truth? That cynical question that Pilate asked Jesus. Many people ask it the same way today. And they're cynical about it as well. They're no more interested in it than they were asking the question. Because the truth hurts. Sometimes the truth can be painful. Because it doesn't allow you to do or continue to do what you're doing. And it may confront that. Other times it affirms what you're doing. There are common terms that are associated with the term truth in the New Testament. You have several different Greek words that identify by that word, like aletheia, which is the word truth, or aletheis, which is true, or aletheinos, which means real, or aletheu, which means to tell the truth, or alethos, which means truly. But we could really sum them up by saying that truth is referring to those things which are factual, things that are faithful or reliable, and things that are real. When it's used as factual, it's conveying a sense of being in accordance with fact or reality as opposed to being false or being an error. This is really how it's used in the New Testament. It's its dominant use. We find it in John 4 uh, being used to characterize the quality of one's speech, that is, speaking in sincerity speaking honestly. You know, God always puts a premium on telling the truth. He says that lying is an abomination. And if you'll read in the end, in the book of Revelation, it talks about those who are going to be in the lake of fire are those who are liars. All liars will have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone. That's how much premium God puts on truth. And that also tells us how dangerous error is. But when Jesus was speaking to the woman at the well in John chapter 4, the woman from Samaria, if you remember, he was talking to her about water, and they were going through an analogy between physical water and living water. 
And as he begins to tell her about this living water, she says, Sir, give me this water, so I will not be thirsty, nor come all the way here to draw. And he said to her, Go call your husband and come here. That was kind of an interesting response. He's talking about living water, and she's talking about wanting to have it. And then she is told to go call your husband. And I believe what he's doing there is what the gospel does. What's the first thing the gospel addresses in your life? Is your sin. And the woman answered, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You have correctly said, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands. And the one that you now have is not your husband. In this you have said truly. You have spoken the truth. You have spoken fact. It would be easy to tell if she was married or not, just as it would be easy to tell if someone's married today or not. Today we have a certificate of marriage, a marriage license, if you will, that identifies that marriage union of a man and a woman. It's also used in Ephesians 4.25 in contrast between falsehood and truth when it says, Therefore laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. It's also used in Colossians 1 to speak of the gospel itself because it calls the gospel the word of truth. So the first sense of this word is factual. We talk about truth, we're talking about things that are factual. Things that are contrasted with error. Things that we can affirm as being true. The second sense of this word is faithfulness or reliability. It says in Romans 3, verse 3 and 4, What then, if some did not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? Paul says, may it never be. Rather, let God be found true, though every man be found a liar. And really, man in his base state is a liar. He was born in lies and born in sin. And it's his iniquity that has encased him. But here, looking at it as faithful, reliable, God is faithful. God is reliable. His word is faithful and reliable. And really understanding truth is that gives you the encouragement that you can trust it a third way it's used is as just simply being real or genuine, as opposed to being fake or being only an imitation. You know the word plastic means fake? Because all it is is an imitation. It's not the real thing. But they disguise it so well. You remember the day when cars were made out of steel? <laughs> Look what you drive now. You touch some of it and it just falls off. It's all plastic. The whole thing's plastic going all the way around it. But Jesus described, or is described by John in the Gospel of John, and that's chapter 1 and verse 9, as being the true light. He is the genuine light that enlightens every man. And the Father even desires 
genuine, true worshipers that worship Him. In that same chapter, for the woman at the well and what Jesus says to her in that conversation, He says, An hour is coming, and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be His worshipers, and God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. So for something to be true, it has to be factual, it has to be faithful or reliable, it has to be real or genuine. And so when we come to the Bible and we ask what is truth, we have to start right here with God. Truth is that which is consistent with the mind, the will, the character, the glory, and the being of God. Truth is a self-expression of God. Truth, then, is theological. God is a God of truth. There is no error in God, can never be any error in God. What He says and what He does is always in truth. All of His decisions are based upon truth, therefore they are factual and faithful, and reliable, and genuine. And we can trust God, because He cannot lie. Titus 1-2 says God cannot lie. So everything about Him is truth then. And we can trust His Word, because His Word is a part of Him. And Jesus even said in John seventeen seventeen, Your Word is truth. And if you're here this morning and you've never committed your life to Christ, you can trust Him. He is the truth. He will never fail you. His Word will never fail you. And you know when the Bible says a person comes to the truth, comes to salvation, comes to understand the gospel, it says in 1 Timothy 2, verses 3 and 4, that they come literally to the knowledge of the truth. They now have God's truth living inside them, governing their mind and their will and their emotions. And they need to constantly feed on the truth. So we said everything about God is truth. And as I said, John is writing about this as he opens up this very brief letter of only 13 verses as he writes this to the elect or chosen lady. Some believe that this is the church he's writing to, but I personally believe that this was an actual lady and her children that he wrote this to. And some of the, really the help that gives us that understanding is just simply the fact that Third John is also written to an individual. We have other books in the Bible that are written to individuals like Timothy and Titus and Philemon and even Jude. Those were written to single individuals. And besides, what all he has to say right here makes more sense when you interpret it coming to an individual than to a church. But nevertheless, they were walking in the truth. And John loved the truth, and he was excited when he learned that others were walking in the truth. Now, last time, 
We saw how John connected truth with love. And we're going to see that again. But first, let's talk about John's joy over the lady's children. He, was, he says there in verse 4, I was very glad to find some of your children walking in truth. You know, it's a great joy when you hear others walking in truth, whether you're a pastor or not. I mean, that's the greatest thing for me as a pastor to hear that and to meet new believers and, and to see them walking in truth or to be around other believers that I know and that they are being faithful to the truth of the Word of God. They're walking in it. They're in the Word. They're talking about the Word. They're living the Word. They're being obedient to the Word. That just brings so much encouragement. And so I can imagine the kind of joy that John had. In fact, he, he did this again in Third John, verse 3. He had the same response. He says, I was very glad when brethren came and testified to your truth. That is how you are walking in truth. I have no greater joy than this to hear of my children walking in truth. Again, that's, that's just such an encouragement. And, and John wasn't the only one that was full of joy over something like this. Paul had the same response when he heard about the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 3. Listen to what he says in verse 6. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us good news of your faith and love, and that you always think kindly of us, longing to see us just as we also long to see you. For this reason, brethren... In all of our distress and affliction, we were comforted about you through your faith. For now we really live if you stand firm in the Lord. For what thanks can we render to God for you in return for all the joy with which we rejoice before our God on your account? As we night and day keep praying most earnestly that we may see your face and may complete what is lacking in your faith. See, he needed to know what was going on with the Thessalonians because if you remember, Acts 17 tells us that he was driven out of Thessalonica. And when he left Thessalonica and he went into Berea, he left in such a hurry, he didn't really know what took place in their reception of the word. And so he sends Timothy back to find out what took place. And here he was so encouraged. Because in the midst of the persecution, and you read that in Acts 17, that they were continuing in the truth. See, beloved, when you receive the truth, you can't live your life apart from it. Your eyes have now been opened to truth. You can't go back. And people who advocate that you can lose your salvation don't understand what in the world they're saying. Like I said last week, to lose your salvation is to go back to the very state that you were in before you were saved. Which means that you'd have to go back to that state of being dead in trespasses and sins. You'd have to go back to that state of not being alive. And that's not going to happen. It's permanent. God has made you alive and nothing you can do can change that. You say, I can just go on and sin and sin and sin and that won't change anything. Listen, if you're going to live a life like that, I question whether you were saved to begin with. You know what I mean? It's like Paul says that those who name the name of Christ depart from iniquity. Your desire will be to depart from it, not embrace it. Or you could be like those in Romans 6 that thought that they could get more grace 
if they sinned, because God would give more grace in the event of sin. And so they said, well, let's just go on sinning so that we can get some more grace. And he says, God forbid that. Do you think God likes sin? Just the very fact that he sent Jesus to die for sin, that he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that tells you right there what he thinks about it. In fact, you could back up to Genesis 6 and learn what he thinks about sin because he destroyed the entire earth with water because of sin, because of wickedness. John had that same response, hearing that they had experienced the truth and they were walking in it. That's what he felt. He says, I was very glad. The word very, that's an adverb. It means exceedingly glad. Very much glad. ESV has it, I rejoiced greatly. His joy was overwhelming. Because of the truth. You know, sometimes there are missionaries that are commissioned to go into foreign places to preach the gospel. Some can spend many years there and not even have a convert. And that will weigh on you. Same in the church. It's same personally in your life. You can go 10, 15, 20 years as a believer, faithfully sharing Christ with others, and they not believe. It has nothing to do with you. You're faithfully presenting the gospel. But in this case... This lady had children, and they did believe. Now, whether she was a widow or not, we really don't know. We tend to lean in that direction if this is not a church, and it is an actual individual because the husband is not named. And usually the husband was named. But she was being faithful. She was referred to here by John as being chosen or elect. And her children were the same. Now, John didn't uh, know if that was true of all of her children. Some of them can mean that some didn't walk in the truth and had fallen prey to the false teachers that he warns them about in verse 7. Or it could mean that he only met some of them who were walking in the truth and didn't know about the rest of them. And that's probably more likely. The word that he uses here for find... He says there in verse 4, I was very glad to find. That's a perfect tense verb. And it's indicating that his initial response to the news was that of joy and gladness. And that joy and gladness continued as he wrote. Because there's a little bit of time between him hearing the news and writing the letter. But I'll tell you what, as he wrote, it's as if, Someone just said that in his ear right then. That's the use of the perfect tense. It had an initial reaction in the past, and it was still having an effect. That's just like in 1 John. 
If 1 John was written in 90 A.D., then when John became a believer and he is talking about the word of life in chapter 1 and talking about those who believe and those who confess it versus those who don't. And he talks about this word that was in his life and that they had experienced the word of the life. They experienced the gospel. They experienced the personal relationship with Christ, a personal, physical relationship with Him. And the perfect tense is used there also to describe that. And He basically is saying that this relationship that I entered into all these years ago was still having an impact on my life as if it happened yesterday. Now, sometimes we run into believers that experience it just the same way. In fact, the one thing that discourages me is to see a new believer eventually not express that joy. Where they've gotten either to the point where they've been intimidated because they were praise the Lord this, praise the Lord that, and someone said something to them, you don't have to praise the Lord for everything, son. And that discouraged them. Or no one else was praising the Lord either and they got discouraged from that. But it is discouraging because, you know, when you're around them, there's that new life. That new life that they're expressing. And I'll tell you what, that joy and that gladness, that's something that we have to fight to maintain to keep. Because the one thing that will destroy that is your sin. And the sin of others. Remind you of Revelation chapter 2. <clears throat> Revelation chapter 2 said they left their first love and they needed to come back. And the way that they were to come back was to go back and do the things they did in the beginning. But first they needed to repent and see that they were forsaking it and then come back and do those things they did in the beginning. But John, he had this abiding sense of joy and it never left him. And no matter how much time elapsed from the initial meeting to the initial letter, he was expressing that joy. Now I want you to see something else. And again, I'm not doing this one verse at a time or one word at a time, but sometimes it's very important to point out particular words or phrases, and especially sometimes prepositional phrases that we find here. They were walking in truth just as we had received command to do from the Father. Now, there's a preposition that's used in there. You have, of your children. That's a prepositional phrase. In truth. All these things here are telling us this. But something that's very interesting, that this is coming here with the force of this preposition and telling us that he only met part of the children. That's what that preposition is helping us to see. It doesn't necessarily mean that they were not all faithful. It does mean that he had come in contact with some of them, but not all of them. And some of them were walking in truth. And they were doing it just as they received commandment to do from the Father. You know the wonderful thing about the Spirit of God and about the Word of God is that we have it. And 
the Spirit of God resides in every believer. Every believer has the Spirit of God. And you know, beloved, as having the Spirit of God, it's the Spirit of God who teaches us. And like over in 1 Thessalonians 4, 1, says, Finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that just as you received from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, but that you excel still more. And then in verse 9 he says, Now as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. Where are we taught by that? We're taught it in the Word. The Spirit of God teaches us that as well. See, the truth is not something just to be believed with the mind. It's something to be lived out in everyday behavior. And just as the Lord Jesus was the living embodiment of truth, so He expects our lives to be testimonies to the truth. Think about Abraham. Over in Genesis 18, Abraham gets a visit. It says three men visited him, but as you read the text, you find out that one of those men is God and the other two are angels that were sent to go into Sodom and Gomorrah and to destroy it. And we've said on other occasions that the one that's God, that that would be a theophany, that would be a manifestation of Christ. We'd call it a, Christ, a Christophany. And we say that because Christ was the only one that took on any kind of physical form uh, in the flesh where the Father or the Spirit did not. But as he is speaking to Abraham, it's interesting how he talks to him. He says, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Since Abraham will surely become a great and mighty nation, and in him all the nations of the earth will be blessed. For I have chosen him so that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring upon Abraham what he has spoken about him. See, Abraham was walking in truth, and God was telling him what he was about to do. And that was not only true of Abraham, but the same was true of David. Over in 1 Kings 2, 3 and 4, David says to Solomon, Keep the charge of the Lord your God to walk in His ways, to keep His statutes, His commandments, His ordinances, His testimonies, according to what is written in the law of Moses that you may succeed in all that you do and wherever you turn, so that the Lord may carry out His promise which He spoke concerning me, saying, If your sons are careful of their way to walk before me in truth, with all their heart and with all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. See, just as we see with Abraham, or just as we see with David, and his encouraging Solomon to do, the same as what John is telling this elect lady and her children to do, was to continue to walk in truth. Walking in God's ways, walking in His statutes, walking in His commandments, walking in His written Word. And that's exactly what they were doing. 
They were doing just as they had received commandment to do from the Father. And again, this, this all highlights the joy uh, that he had because of this. This beloved family was part of the truth. They were identified with the truth. John loved them in truth. Others loved them in truth. It's very possible that this elect lady had the church meeting in her house because the house was large enough for this. You didn't have church buildings to around the third century. So churches met in homes or met out in the open air. But for the most part, they met in homes. House churches. House churches that you hear about today, that's not a new concept. That was the first concept. That's how it all began. But I want you to see here that really the heart of what he has to say is in verses 5 and 6. Because the heart of what he has to say is that he wants to identify with this charge how that they can walk in truth. How they are carrying out the subject of truth. And so as he exhorts this chosen lady, he exhorts her and her children to love in response to the commandment. Now, they have been given a commandment, and the commandment was to love one another. But as we just read in 1 Thessalonians about the Thessalonians, and true for every believer, you and I and they are taught by God to love. And how are we taught that? By the Spirit of God who's been given to us. Because Romans 5.5 5 tells us that we have the Holy Spirit in us. It has been given to us. And the love of God has been shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. But when he's talking about this commandment to love, he first tells them this is not a new commandment. He says, I I'm not writing as though I were writing to you a new commandment, but the one which you've had from the beginning. Yes, they had it from the beginning. It goes all the way back into the Old Testament. It goes all the way back to Leviticus 19 and verse 18, which says, You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And then if you go forward into Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 5, it talks about loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And that's applied in the New Testament. And Jesus says, on this hangs the law and the prophets. Loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving your neighbor as yourself. That fulfills what the prophets spoke. So you don't really need a list hanging on your wall that says don't do this, 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 don't do this. You don't need a list of that. Because in your heart is the truth. In your heart is the commandment to love one another. And if you love one another, you don't need the do nots. Because you won't do those things. Because out of love, you care about that person. And out of love you serve the Lord. You know, there is the difference between the spirit of obedience and the act of obedience. Well, the act of obedience is 
doing exactly what you're told. You may not have the mind for it. You may not have the emotion for it. You may have a bad attitude uh, because you're asked to do something you don't want to do. You know, none of my kids ever respond that way. But we all do do that at times, don't we? We're asked to do something, and I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. I have a nice shirt, and it's got a picture of Snoopy on it, and it says, don't ask me to do anything. I wear it a lot because I don't want anybody to ask me to do anything. (laughs) The command he gives here is to love one another. Again, it's not a new commandment. It's a command they've already had. It's a command you and I have. We are to love one another. That's how all will know that we belong to Christ when they see the love that we have for each other. That's what Jesus said. He told the disciples that. Instead, they bickered back and forth and arguing over who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom. Listen, the greatest in the kingdom is the servant, the slave. Over in John 13, you remember the story. That's the story where Jesus washes the feet of the disciples. Remember that? They were shocked that he was doing that, but they were not willing to humble themselves to do it. The common custom was when they would come into a home, come into a place, there would be a servant there that would wash the feet of the guest. When they came to this place for this meal, there was no servant there to wash the feet. And if you have the background of them arguing over who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom, and then you have... James and John, the sons of Zebedee, sending their mother to talk to Jesus about which one of them could sit on the right or the left hand of his throne when he comes in his kingdom. Remember that? So these guys are doing all of this kind of stuff. Neither one of them are going to stoop low enough to take on the role of a servant and wash feet. So Jesus did. And what he was instituting there was not an ordinance for the church to wash feet. But no, what he was instituting was that you humble yourselves and you serve and love your brother. Love one another. That's how you love one another. You get down there and you meet their need. What was their need? They needed their feet washed. They had dust on their feet. They wore sandals. And he was illustrating to them like when he came to Peter and Peter just could not have Jesus wash him. And so Jesus tells Peter, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. So now he wants a bath, you know, which I don't blame him. But Jesus tells him that he who is bathed only needs to be bathed once. And that's really reminiscent or used metaphorically of salvation to say that you only need to be saved one time, Peter. But... You need the daily cleansing. You need the 1 John 1, 9. That if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to cleanse us from our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You need that going on every day. And we're told that Jesus does intercession for us and that He does cleanse us every day. And so in John 13, 34, after He's done with the object lesson, he says, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. 
Here's how you love one another. You stoop down, humble yourself, and meet that person's need. That's how you do it. This is my commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. And the kind of love that he uses here is the Greek word agape. You may pronounce it agape. And it basically is the kind of love that humbles itself to the need of another. We, we see it used all throughout the New Testament. I like to use Philippians 2.3 as a good example of this because it says in that verse, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another more important than yourselves. And when you humble yourself to the point of meeting another person's need, that's what you're doing. You're putting aside your selfishness and you're saying you are more important than my needs and I'm going to meet your needs. I mean, that's really what Paul says in Romans 12. Romans 12, 9, he says, Let love be without hypocrisy. How do you do that, Paul? Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. Then verse 13, contribute to the needs of the saints. Practice hospitality. See, I told you that the background of 2 John and 3 John is just simply that. It's hospitality. See, the elect lady and her children were host to the traveling preachers, the itinerant preachers that would come through the area, and they would put them up. They'd give them a place to stay. But unfortunately, there were false teachers traveling the same circuit. And sometimes they would put up a false teacher not truly knowing it. And that's why in verses 7 and following, he points out how to identify those false teachers, those Gnostic, that Gnostic group we talked about last week. But the commandment is to love. And that commandment has been rooted in the Old Testament. It's reaffirmed in the New Testament. Over in 1 John, by the way, when I was studying 1 John... It was so hard to gain any kind of flowing outline through the entire book because, say, for example, you're talking about love here and you think that you're done with the treatment of love because it goes off into something else and then all of a sudden he comes back again to it and gives an even another treatment of it and then you deal with it again there and then you move on and he moves on and then you come back and he's dealing with it again. It made it really... Difficult, as I said, to follow the flow. But listen to some of what he said. First John 3, 11. For this is the message which we've heard from the beginning that we should love one another. Again, heard from the beginning. This is a message that they had. This is the message that Jesus preached. First John 4, 7. Beloved, let us love one another for love is from God and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Or 1 John 4.21, And this commandment we have had from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. So if you do have a relationship with Christ, 
you are commanded by Christ, by God's word, to love one another. And you know what? Think of it in this way. We're told to love one another, and here the context would be believers, right? But what about unbelievers? Are we to love unbelievers? What about our enemies? How are we to respond to our enemies? Well, Matthew 5.44 says, love your enemies. So essentially, we're supposed to love everyone, and even those that are our enemies. We love them enough in this way, to confront them with the truth. Last few Wednesday nights in our men's Bible study, we've been talking about Matthew 18, 15 to 17, which is the section on church discipline. And as we've been talking about this, we've been pointing out how this has been such a neglected teaching in the church. But I'll tell you what, beloved, if you really love somebody, then you're willing to help them see their sin. Because, you know, sometimes we get caught up in sin and sin puts blinders on our eyes and we don't, quite realize that we've been caught up in that and it's helpful to have a brother or a sister come alongside us and to show us that's why the confrontation first of all is personal is private between you and that individual the goal is to gain your brother to win your brother the goal is so that you both are walking in truth So that means you have to confront error. You have to confront sin. Sometimes people tend to think that that's just the role of the pastor or that's just the role of somebody else. But folks, that is the role of every believer. Every believer is to be involved in church discipline. If every believer were involved in church discipline and things happening on a one-on-one basis, you would very seldom have, have a need to put anybody out of the church unless they were just those who would not repent but your goal is to win win them not lose them Paul repeated time and again the same command that John is here giving us and when he repeated it he talked about walking in love and used that as a command And what does walking signify? One step at a time. He uses that same command of walking as it's used even here, but he also uses it in Galatians 5 in talking about how we are to walk in the Spirit. And it is a moment-by-moment, step-by-step process. He said over in Romans 13.8, Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another, for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. Even the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 13.1 says, Let love of the brethren continue. And even Peter, we looked at this when we were going through 1 Peter 1.22, Since you have an obedience to the true, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another. And then in chapter 4 and verse 8, above all, keep fervent in your love. You you have to stir this up and keep it from growing cold. Constantly be reminded of what Christ has done for you to stir that up. Go back to the beginning, as he says in Revelation chapter 2. Go back and do the things you did in the beginning if you have moved away from them. 
excite your heart with Bible study and prayer and Scripture memory and meditating on the Scripture. Go back to those things you were excited about in the beginning and rekindle the flame if that flame is not there. That leads us to what he says in verse 6. He says in verse 6, not only are we called by commandment to love one another, but we're called to obedience to this commandment. Beloved, obedience is really the only outward, visible evidence to show that you really believe God is your obedience. Because that can be seen. That's faith at work. I mean, that goes right along with what James has been talking about. He says faith without works is dead, right? Well, faith with works is alive. And when we live out the Christian faith, it can be seen. And how can it be seen? It can be seen in our love for one another. It can be seen in our obedience. He says in verse 6, and this is love, that we walk according to His commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, that you should walk in it. The word walk there means to behave. It means to conduct oneself. It means to be a moral walk. Your behavior, your conduct is according to the command of love. And this uh, idea of according to, it suggests domination. We are to order our behavior. We are to conduct ourselves dominated by the commands of God and dominated in our behavior. Look back at verse 4. I was very glad to find some of your children walking. They were behaving in the truth. Colossians 2.6 does the same thing. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, so obey Him, so let that be your behavior. Let that govern what you're doing. As I said a few moments ago, Galatians 5.16, talking about walking in the Spirit, Moment by moment, let your behavior be that of the Spirit. Let your behavior be that of the means of the Spirit. And when you do that, he says, you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. Let me have you to turn over with me to 1 John chapter 2. And again, I want you to see this fleshed out. In 1 John... If you really want to see the definition of truth and it being factual and faithful and real, you really see it in 1 John because he says so many things that are absolute and that are black and white, that are just kind of cut to the chase, cut you know, to, to write on to what you need to, to be focused on. And he says over in verse 3, here's how we can know that we've come to know Him. How can you know that you are a believer in Christ? How can you be assured that you're a Christian? He says right there in verse 3, if you keep His commandments. That's how you can know. 
The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is what? A liar. And the truth is not in him. See, this is the group in chapter 1. You had the if we sayers, and the if we sayers occur in verse 6, 8, and 10. Look at verse 6 of chapter 1. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. See, they say one thing, but their life is different. They live something totally different than what they say. Verse 8, if we say that we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. See, they've come to the point where they're just denying the presence of sin altogether. And now, verse 10, they come to the understanding that they have not even sinned. They've reached a moral perfection. He says, if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Why do we make him a liar? Because he says, you have sinned. You know, when it says in verse 9, if we confess our sins, the word confess is the Greek word homologeo. Homologeo means to say the same thing. And it means that when you confess your sin, you're saying the same thing that God says about your sin. Same is true in Romans 10.9 when it talks about confessing Jesus as Lord. You're saying the same thing the Bible says about Jesus, that He is Lord, that He is God. And you're agreeing with that, and you're confessing that. Same is true about your sin. God says you're a sinner. God says I'm a sinner. And to say you have not sinned is to call Him a liar. Because He says you have sinned. And so, that's the people who hate their brother. That's the people who don't walk in the light. That's the people who are stumbling. I mean, look at what he says. He says in verse 7, Beloved, I'm not writing a new commandment to you, but an old commandment which you've had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you've heard. It sounds just like the same language as he repeats that in 2 John. He says, On the other hand, I'm writing a new commandment to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the same or the true light is already shining. The one who says he is in the light and yet hates his brother is in the darkness until now. The one who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But the one who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. See, you either walk in truth or you don't. And if you walk in the truth, you're obedient to the command to love one another. And when you love one another, it is seen in your life by you humbly Meeting that person's need. When I'm told in Ephesians 5.25 to love my wife as Christ loves the church, I am to love her the way that He loves her. Can I do that? Oh, not really. (laughs) But I can really try. I can really work hard at it. And that's what I have to do. And I do love her like Christ loves the church when I'm walking in the Spirit. When I'm not walking in the Spirit, my love is selfish. And I'm loving out of what I can get from it. 
Maybe it's completing something on the honeydew list I mentioned last week. And I'm saying that I'm expressing my love because I completed this thing on the honeydew list. But where I maybe have had an ulterior motive in completing that thing on the honeydew list, maybe it was so that I could quit being reminded that there was a list. Therefore, I completed one of the things on the list so that that wouldn't come up, at least for a little while. I know my wife is watching this right now. I'm really in a lot of trouble. See, when you obey the commandments of God, you're, you're demonstrating true love. I mean, Jesus said it this way, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. I mean, th that's so simple to understand. That proves our love for Christ. In John 14, 21, it says, He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. By the way, uh, what I was saying just a minute ago, my mom told me after I got saved, she said, she said, I, I came and was listening to you when you would preach. And she said, I learned more about what you did during those years by listening to you preach than I ever knew. I didn't know you were doing some of those things until you're saying it in your message. Sometimes uh, preaching has a way to bring that out, right? But, you know, love and obedience are inseparable. They're linked together, just, just as they're linked to truth. Truth is foundational to your love and obedience. We love one another, not just because we're commanded to do it, because it's right. It's like in Ephesians 6 when it talks about children, obey your parents, for this is right. You have to give them a hundred reasons why they need to obey you. Just give them the one reason that God gave. It's right. This is the right thing to do. There is a right and a wrong. And yet in the world, what are we getting? Wrong is right and right is wrong. They're calling lies truth and truth lies. And nobody wants to hear truth. Jesus said, in terms of the gospel and the gospel of truth, the truth would set you free. And how would you know that it sets you free? If you're a doer of the word. If you're continuing in his word, then you'll know that you're his disciple. But if you're not continuing in it, you're not doing what he has commanded you to do, you to do and you don't have love in your heart for one another, but you have hate in your heart, that is an indicator that you, my friend, are in a heap of trouble. You're not saved. The true transformation that takes place in the heart will be manifested in your life. You remember Ephesians 2.10? For we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. He's made us His we're His workmanship. We're, we're the work that He is doing. And the work that He's done in us. So this is the love of God. You keep His commandments. And His commandments do not become a burden. So are you walking this way? I mean, is this what describes your life? Could I have the same response John had? 
to be around you or to be around your kids or to be around your grandkids and to see all of you love the Lord. Now, I, I know the reality is, is that we have family members that are lost. I have them. And not everybody in your family is saved. We pray that they will repent and come to Christ, don't we? So that they can be those who are children of truth as well. But what about your own life? Are, are you walking in truth in such a way that they can see it? And they see your love for one another? Do they understand that you know Christ? Do you talk about Christ to them? Do you live Christ in front of them? You know, Jesus said that He was the way, the truth, and the life. I mean, that's, that's very narrow right there. The way to Christ is narrow. It's a narrow gate. And it's a narrow understanding. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. And no one comes to the Father but through Him. But if you're out there with others saying that there are other ways to heaven, Joel Osteen believes that there are other ways to heaven. Many of those false teachers believe that there are other ways to heaven. They're not preaching the God of the Bible. I'll tell you that right now. And anytime they get confronted with the truth of the Bible, they turn on their critics. Benny Hinn said that he would love to take a Holy Ghost machine gun and blow John MacArthur away because John MacArthur confronted Benny Hinn's false teaching. But we don't have to worry about John MacArthur doing that. We just take Costi Hinn doing it, right? Who was right there in it and came out of it and talks about it what it was like. But these charlatans are there, and the charlatans were there in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. So obeying God's command comes when you have a relationship with God. The Holy Spirit gives you the love of God as a result of your obedience to the gospel. You know, that's the way it describes your reception to the gospel. It describes it as obedience. Because here's what it says about those who do not come to the gospel. 2 Thessalonians 1.8 says, Christ will deal out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. The gospel is something to be obeyed, to come to, to embrace. And what is the gospel? Well, Alistair Begg defined it this way, Christ died in my place. That's the gospel. He died in my place. He died in your place. That says a lot when you just take that phrase because that says you were the one that deserved to die. I was the one that deserved to die. Not Christ. Christ didn't do anything wrong. But He who became sin became sin on my behalf and your behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God. God treated him as if he sinned, but he didn't and he couldn't. And he poured out all of his wrath on him, which is wrath for us. That was our wrath he took on himself. He died in your place. And the gospel is a call to recognize your condition. Without God, you're without hope. 
You're a sinful person deserving of hell. Every person born is deserving of hell because every person born is a sinner from the very womb. We're all sinners. And you'll prove that sometime today that you're a sinner when you sin. I hope you don't, but when you do, you will, rep- you will prove what I'm saying. It's also a recognition of the Savior, recognizing who Jesus is and turning to Him for forgiveness. Jesus said it this way, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel, Mark 1.15. So what does God require of you? He requires that you repent. He requires that you believe in the gospel. He requires that you receive Him. John 1.12, But as many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in His name. To receive Him, who is the Word of God, means that you're acknowledging His claims, you're placing your faith in Him, and you're yielding allegiance to Him. And I'll close with this. When it says in John 3.16 that God so loved the world, that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. The term believe is translated in chapter 2 of John. It's translated in verse 24, commit or entrust. So that's what he's talking about. When he's talking about believing in Him, he's talking about committing yourself to Him. Giving your allegiance to Him. Committing your life to Him. That's what it means. You hear other terms? Follow me. Jesus didn't say make a decision for me. He said follow me. Follow me. And we know what follow means because we have examples. When he came to his disciples and he told them to follow him, they got up from whatever they were doing and followed him. And then when he started talking about eat my flesh and drink my blood, it said that there were some disciples that stopped following him. Because that saying was was too difficult for them to take. They couldn't understand that. And they tried to take it literally, but it was used metaphorically. He wasn't advocating cannibalism. He was advocating commitment. And so there are a lot of people that say they believe in Christ, but they never have made a commitment to Him. They have lip service. It's just a word on their lips. They live the rest of their life according to their own will, not according to the will of God. That describes you That can change right now. I encourage you, I urge you to come to Christ and be forgiven of all your sin. Let's pray. We thank you, Heavenly Father, for the Word, your Word of truth. 
that has taught us today. We thank you for what we've learned. We are to love one another. And when we love one another, we are demonstrating that we know the truth and that we're walking in the truth. Lord, may we be faithful, may we be obedient to your command, and may we love you first and foremost with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We pray all this in Jesus' name.